Empire Live from the Empire of Lies, where every day, Monday through Friday, a community of free thinkers and free speakers get together to discuss the issues. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. How you doing today, Rod? Not badly. I can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. It's kind of miserable, cold, and rainy day in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So it's a little sad, if that makes sense. I'm one of those people, the weather bums me out sometimes. Does the weather ever affect you, Rod? Uh, sometimes, Lee. Sometimes I like some sun. And then, you like, like you said, it's probably overcast and, you know, all day, multiple days. And you just want to see the sun. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. I could never do the Seattle thing where it's overcast, you know, 70% of the year. Yeah, I know. And people who live there in the Pacific Northwest say it really gets you eventually. After, a, like, 60 days of darkness, it's a little sad. But ask Kurt Cobain. But we got a great show today, so that's cheerful. You put together a great show. Our friend, the great Mark Sabota, is with us in the first hour. And we got a lot of stuff to talk to Mark about and a lot of clips to play. Vladimir Putin made a speech recently, and the Western media is out there lying about it. And then in the second hour, we're joined by another great friend of the show, the historian and writer, Daniel Zar. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is The Backstory. Okay, Rod, so we got a bunch of clips, as I pointed out. Uh, so I'm going to have to get to some of them quickly. I think I'm going to start with Fetterman, okay? And it occurred to me today, John Fetterman, who's running for Senate in the great state of Pennsylvania, uh, and I don't think he's going to win. He's really looking. Have you seen any polling numbers after that debate? Oh yeah, Lee. He's you know the the you know the the leftists you know the only true leftists like AOC talks about who can be anti-war protesters. Protesters, they they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Like you said, the polling's all you know. It's just showing him going straight down. And you know even his uh, his campaign manager and his wife are attacking. The debate moderators because the closed captioning wasn't good enough. <laughs> it's just like this is one of the craziest things you ever seen in politics. It's, it's just so wild. And Fetterman, I'll say he is kind of wokey, kind of strokey. Does that make sense, Rod? <laughs> you know, if you know, if you didn't suffer a stroke yourself, Lee, they would all they would all come after you. But since you since you uh... well, bring it on, you able bastards. <laughs> let me put, let me put it like that. I'm fighting. So uh, and. and Tucker referred to the critics of John Fetterman as ableist last night on his talk show, and it was brilliant. So I'm going to take on the ableist bravely. I'm going up against those who've not had strokes. They have nothing to brag about. You know, I'm in the admirable position of being a victim. So according to the left, I'm now the best thing. You know, if I died, it would perhaps be better for some. But so Fetterman's not doing well, and he's not doing well in the polls. And of course, we we wish him a long and healthy life, just not as senator. What do you think he's going to do when he loses the election? What is he qualified to do, Rod? 
It's a good question, Lee. I mean, he's a glorified rich kid up until, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, even if I, my parents were rich, I, you know, eventually maybe by like 35, maybe close to 40, I'd be like, let me get my life together. But this guy went up to 50, decided to be the mayor of a small town and make it worse. Then he was chosen lieutenant governor, and here we are, and now he's trying to become senator. I just gave you his life, you know, in a short summary. So, um, and you're, you're right, but but let me, be honest. Put yourself in the position of an employer, and a guy comes in for an interview, and he looks like John Fetterman, and he dresses like John Fetterman. If a, a guy came in, what is he? He's middle-aged, right? And wearing the hoodie. Yeah, he's like... He's like 52. <laughs> right. So if he came in for a job interview, would he make a favorable first impression on you, Rod? Be, be honest. All, everything else aside, just that guy in the hoodie. I heard someone call him uh, uh, John Uncle Festerman, and it, it's kind of accurate. <laughs> he does look like Uncle Fester from the Adams family. But if he came in... Would he make a favorable impression on you as an employer? Oh, no, not at all, Lee. And that, and that's what I'm saying. This guy's just so lacks any self-awareness. Even, you know, he thinks wearing a hoodie makes him more of a common man. But it's just like, you know, if you're presenting yourself to the people, you'd want to wear at least a dress shirt, some pants, maybe even a tie. But no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't imply just off that. I'm like, oh, you don't care about or You don't even care about your parents. So what, why should I hire you? By the way, if I went in for a job interview, I would dress a little better. Let me point out, if I'm running for Senate, I would, I don't dress bad, but I dress casually. Please say I don't dress bad, but casually, Rod. Go ahead. No, no, you just, I like, I like your shirts, you know, especially, you know, I like your little Cuban shirts. They're pretty cool. I, you know, I need to get some of them with the pockets and all that. Uh, the pockets so no, are the thing I love. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, if you just think about it, if you had a, a, a lot of money, wouldn't you want to dress nice sometimes? Like, you know what? I'm going to dress up today. This guy's he's got he's had so much money his whole life. He's the opposite. Let me let me dress down so that people don't know I got money. Yes. So let's play the compilation clip first. Here's John Fetterman, a bunch of a compilation of clips from his debate with Dr. Oz. Hit it. Six percent. That's a big tax rate. He supported Joe Biden's re recent tax rate, uh, rate increase, and he's done that without paying his own taxes 67 times. I'll say that again. He hasn't paid his own taxes 67 times, but he's no. raising mine and yours. Those are radical positions. They're extreme. They're out of touch with the values of Pennsylvanians. And I can make the difficult decisions, as you do in the operating room as a surgeon. I'll make them cutting our budget as well to make sure we don't have to raise taxes on a population already desperately in pain from the high inflation rate. Mr. Fetterman, I will allow a 15-second rebuttal. He has specifically said you have not paid your taxes and that you want to raise taxes on Americans. How do you respond? I uh, absolutely. The Oz rule, of course, he's lying. It was helping two students 17 years ago to help them you know, buy their own homes. They, they didn't pay the bills, and it got her paid, and it has never been an issue in, in any of the campaign before. It was all about nonprofit. All right. Thank you, Mr. Fetterman. Could you that, that can fight against inflation and pushing back against corporate greed or somebody that is chosen working in China versus over American workers? 
All right, I will allow a 15-second rebuttal to his comments that you have been making things in China. Mr. Is he asking the questions and answering them? Policy issues with the people of Pennsylvania. As a doctor, I listen to their ideas, and I want to talk about them. When John Fetterman brings up houses, the irony is he didn't pay for his own house. He got it for a dollar from his sister, and he hasn't been able to, to earn a living on his own. He's lived off his parents. So it, it doesn't, it's not a topic that we should be debating on the stage. We should be talking about crime and inflation, the issues that are hurting Pennsylvanians that they're talking about at their kitchen table. That's no, it, 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 it. He got his Pennsylvania right, house Fetterman, from his own inlays from a, a dollar. Mr. That's Fetterman, typical. we have to continue on. Concerned about the ongoing legal investigations involving the former president. 30 seconds, sir. I haven't followed them very carefully. I've been campaigning pretty aggressively. They'll work themselves out. I have tremendous confidence in the American legal system, and I believe law and order will reign supreme. But speaking about that topic, there's one person on this stage who's broken the law, we believe. John Fetterman took a shotgun to an unarmed African-American man and put the gun, apparently, according to that man, to his chest. John, you weren't pulled over by the police. Uh, they let you go. You were the mayor at the time. Why haven't you apologized to that unarmed, innocent black man who you put a shotgun to his chest? All right, we ugly? will allow a 30-second response to that, Mr. Fetterman, specifically what he was saying referring uh, to the incident in Braddock. No, I made I the opportunity to defend my community as the, the chief law enforcement officer there. Everybody in Braddock, uh, an overwhelmingly majority uh, community of, of black uh, community, all understood what happened. You know, they, uh, they understood what happened. And everybody agreed that, and nobody believes that it was anything about me making a split-second decision to, to defend our community as well. Why not apologize? Uh, 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 Mr. Oz, please. Uh, we, we are still with Mr. Fetterman. Now, did he say, did I hear that wrong? Did he say an overwhelming community of black? Is that what he said? That's what he said, Lee. That's what I thought. You know, that's a little... That's the kind of slips he makes that lead me to believe there's more to his stroke than he's letting on. You agree? Oh, yeah, for sure, Lee. And, you know, but the, the, the big thing, that's why I made it the last one. If you, you know, most people have no idea that that incident happened. And you just see the moderator and John Fetterman just, you know, uh, you know, most people in Braddock, you know, and then he just mumbles along. But the moderator doesn't follow up and nobody, you know what I mean? And Oz isn't political savvy enough to stick it to him. He was defending the community from an innocent black man, or as he say, an innocent black, or a community of black. I'm not sure. He, he doesn't put the pearl on it. So dude, I don't know anything about, he was apparently mayor of this town called Braddock, Pennsylvania. And have you ever been to Braddock, Rod? No, never. What do you know about it? Because I've heard it's a really poor community. I've heard it's the kind of place they say he bought his house for a dollar, and I've heard that's not a bargain in Braddock. You know what I mean? It's a, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not joking either. That that it's supposedly one of those places where you can buy a house for anybody, like four or five thousand bucks. What do you know about Braddock, Pennsylvania, Rod? I I would uh, compare it to a smaller version of Youngstown, which used to be a, a steel hub. And, you know, once the factories left, it just became dilapidated, uh, and it's just, you know, pretty much like a wasteland almost. So, yeah, Braddock's a small town. There's no barely any economy and any, anything like that. So you know, that's what I know about it. Well, I've been, I've been to Steubenville, Ohio, and Steubenville is very similar. When steel industry moved out, it became a very poor town. And then people in gangs 
from Chicago started to move in. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, you know, I've also heard that about uh, other parts of the country. And uh, Chicago is a big hub of uh, where these gangs flow out to other parts of the country, even other parts of uh, other countries like Belize. A lot of uh, gang members get deported back to Belize, and there's a big gang problem over there. So let's get to uh, a short break because we're about to be joined by our great friend, Mark Sloboda, straight out of Moscow. That's coming up next on The Backstory. backstory and on the radio in the Empire of Lies capital Washington DC at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM joining us now straight out of Moscow Russia our good friend geopolitical and frequent guest Mark Sabora hey Mark how you doing Lee thanks for having me it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory well it's always great to talk to you Mark so let's talk about Russia and Ukraine it seems to me we're an odd kind of lull. I mean, the missile strikes on Ukraine continue from Russia every couple of days, and they're taking out the power grid there. Yes. Right? So that's going on. But aside from that, it seems like there's a lull, and the Ukrainians are not advancing at all. And everybody's kind of waiting for the rest of the mobilization to complete. Am I right about that essentially, Mark? Well, I wouldn't say there's a lull. There's continue heavy fighting every day in multiple areas. It's just that the lines, uh, the Russian defensive lines have held, have thrown back the counteroffensive, uh, and they've been able to uh, uh, hold territory without the need uh, to withdraw any further as the reservists are uh, slowly filtered into the theater based on uh, how much retraining they need. No, no, and and you're right, of course. And and really, what I meant by lull is the media in the U.S. and the U.K. that I monitor, they seem kind of bummed because there's no good news to report from the Ukraine yeah. side. Does that, that make sense? True. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean. Uh, one, one of the things that I've seen uh, repeated uh, in the, the Western mainstream media is reporting, oh, uh, the uh, Ukraine reports that they've taken back nine more settlements and ten more settlements. And then when you look in the details, you find that they're rehashing the settlements that they took a month ago when Russia withdrew from the area without any fighting in order to shorten their defensive lines while they were preparing uh, to to hunker down and wait for the reservists to come in. But because there have been no new advances and it's necessary to present as if there are, that Kiev is winning, that the counteroffensives are doing something rather than racking up, you know, uh, conscripts into the meat grinder. Um, uh, they, um, they, they continue to rehash old ones and, uh, those who, uh, aren't, uh, you know, informed and, and, you know, don't know the minutia of 
the settlements in the, in the Harrison Steppe or uh, the the backwoods outbacks of of uh, the area north of of Lugansk, uh, they they might be uh, misled otherwise. Yes, and and uh, you know, you mentioned Kherson. We've been talking about Kherson for months, and in the Kherson region, there was some talk early in the week. The media was trying to act like Russia might pull out of Kherson, but not with General Armageddon on the case. It does not seem to be happening. The Russians seem to be digging in in Kherson. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, um, so, I mean, uh, what happened there is the Kiev regime built up a force of uh, what they say is about 60,000 troops, uh, most of them light infantry, right, because uh, they they don't have a whole lot of Western gear left and, and not a huge ability. Uh, there's really no ability to replace it because the West does, simply doesn't have it to, to hand to them uh, in, in significant numbers anymore. Uh, but, um, you know, they were definitely planning a push on Kherson. Um, and uh, the Russian government, uh, you know, uh, the, taking a look at the options and particularly looking uh, at what they saw were was the Kiev regime uh, considering uh, blowing up the Kohovka uh, reservoir dam and hydroelectric station, which would have flooded the whole area and put much of Harrison City under meters of water, probably killing thousands of people in the process, but severely hindering Russia's ability to resupply their and reinforce their troops in Harrison. Uh, Russia took a look at all of this and said, all right, we're going to we're going to defend the city here. Uh, we need to get civilians out. Uh, and that is the responsible thing to do. Right. If you're planning a defense of an urban area, um, then uh, you need to get the civilians out. And it, it needs to be pointed out that as Amnesty International has reported it earlier, this is what the Kiev regime has not done. Uh, it, uh, you know, particularly in East Ukraine, but in in other areas, they were turning every building, every hospital, every school into a firing point, but not moving the people out. Effectively using them as human shields, and in particular, we saw this in Mariupol. Uh, in in uh, around the uh, Azovstal uh, steel factory, but you know the whole city, uh, regardless. And Amnesty International rightly pointed out that this is a war crime, and Russia is doing the right thing according to the rules of war, which is if you're getting ready to you know put in a defense of an urban area, then you get the civilians the heck out of there, and that's what they have done. And I mean, there's been all kinds of talk in the Western media that that Russia was was pulling out of Kherson simply because they were getting civilians out. Well, I mean, that was conjecture. Um, I I do believe that if the Kiev regime had had a lot of success, if they managed to push the Russian defensive lines, uh, trenches and fortifications, if they managed to get to the city and it looked like they were going to surround it, you know, perhaps aided by uh, blowing up the Kohovka Reservoir Dam, then Russia probably would have pulled out, right? That has been what they have done so far. Rather, they have tried to preserve their military and not make 
you know, last stands on a point. Uh, but if it looks like their forces were going to be enveloped or surrounded, they withdrew them to preserve them, uh, you know, to, to fight another day. Um, and that's exactly what happened in, in the Harkov region, right? Uh, they saw they were outnumbered, and rather than fight, uh, they, they withdrew in good order, saved their forces, and did heavy damage while retreating uh, uh, to uh, Kiev regime forces with their long-range artillery and aviation. But here, the Russian defensive lines held. They've held for, for months now. They, they withdrew about a month ago. They shortened the defensive lines again, uh, and the Kiev forces uh, surged forward to fill up that space, declaring a great victory, and just got hammered again. It's kind of uh, Mongolian tactics, right? Mongolian horse archers. They will fire their bows, and when the enemy gets close, they would pull back a little bit and fire again, and wheel back and fire again, and never actually letting the enemy close with them. And when you have uh, you know, uh, superior fires like that, that's a, a smart thing to do. But here, um, for the last about three weeks now, it has not been necessary to do that because enough reinforcement uh, and uh, building of, of defensive lines was done, and the Russian fires, the heavy artillery, the rocket systems, the aviation proved enough, and they have inflicted horrific casualties on the Kiev regime's uh, conscripts. Um, and they've held, and it has not been necessary to withdraw. Uh, it was still a good idea to get the civilians out, and it's not over yet. Right. The fact that Russian defensive lines have held doesn't mean that in in another week that they might have found a weak point and penetrate through. But the truth of the matter is now is that they haven't made any advances in, in, in three weeks. And the, the only advances they did before was when Russia withdrew uh, uh, tactically. Uh, so uh, but now the uh, the reservists that have been called up are, are filtering into the theater and within a month. They should mostly be there. Um, and then it's a, it's a whole new war uh, because Russia started off this intervention uh, self-limiting themselves for whatever stupid reason they did, to be frank, um, to 150,000 troops. That's it. When they have a million man active duty military, two million reserves and another 25 million um Russian citizens uh, with military experience and a fighting age. So, I mean, they have plenty to, to withdraw on. And when they saw the Kiev regime start to forcibly conscript every male in the country, forbidding men between the ages of 16 and 60 from leaving the country, they, they should have made preparations, but they didn't. But now, okay, belatedly, better late than never, I guess, um, they, they have called up at least some 300,000 uh, reserves, and there have been uh, another 70,000 uh, volunteers at least since then. Uh, that was already of, uh, a, a month ago, so it's probably uh, significantly higher now. But that means that the Russian intervention force is set to more than double its size, right? 150,000 uh, to uh, upwards of 500,000, closer to 600,000. So the Kiev regime's manpower advantage is going to effectively be gone. They will be at parity, and that was the one advantage that they had. And they have wasted all of the Western gear 
that they had on these counteroffensives, gear that would have been served them much better if they had stayed in defensive positions rather than certainly rather than rushing across the open steppe of Kherson into superior Russian artillery and aviation. It, it, it was suicide charges. And we've seen increasing videos posted by Kiev regime forces uh, and the foreign quote unquote mercenaries in the theater uh, that, uh, you know, uh, posted to their own t uh, social media channels on Telegram that they're refusing to charge into those fires anymore because they know it's a suicide. Uh, mission and 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 they've been refusing to do it. So the the uh, the whole counteroffensive in Kherson has ground to a complete halt. Uh, you know, and it had uh, you know not significant, not strategic gains this entire time. And and the cost in in both gear and manpower to the Kiev regime has been horrible. It's it, it's really uh, it. The, the, the casualty count is, is something that you don't even want to see. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it's a shame. It's a tragedy, really. Uh, but, uh, now, you know, these are the orders Mark, that are coming out of Kiev. So, Mark, let me ask you first. Uh, I've got a lot of clips I've got to balance. Is it possible you could say what is this till the top of the hour? Sure. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate you doing that because I know it's late for you. And it's always great to have you on, Mark. So, the first thing I want to ask about is something I don't know if you've heard about. We've talked about Professor Dugan before, and of course his daughter Daria was assassinated by the Ukrainians in Russia, in Moscow, with a bomb, a terrorist bombing by the government of Ukraine. But Professor Dugan, you know and you've worked with, in fact, you translated, I believe, the fourth political theory, correct? Yeah, I was co-translator, yes. Right. So, now, did you see what Amazon's done with that book? Have you heard I, that? I have seen, I have, I have heard that all of uh, uh, Professor Dugan's books have been removed from Amazon. Now, so, what's your gut, first off, what's your gut reaction? I'm guessing you're somewhat cynical about the U.S., that you're not shocked that that censorship is going on, right? No, not at all. I mean, that's I mean, not just in the U.S., but across the West. I mean, they've been they've been uh, forbidding Dostoevsky to be taught in universities or Tchaikovsky to be played. I mean, it, it is I mean, they they, they have. Uh, you know, really turned themselves uh, into uh, a uh, 1984, you know, um, Fahrenheit 451 type society. I mean, those were supposed to be warnings, not guidelines. Uh, so I'm not surprised by it. Uh, they're afraid. That, that that's the only thing that explains it. They're afraid and they're desperate, and uh, they don't want their people. Uh, reading and being exposed to alternative viewpoints, uh, alternative ways of looking at the world, and making up their own minds. They 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 can't allow that anymore. They're they're scared. Now, yesterday on the show, we played the entire 1963 peace speech by JFK. So I have a little clip from that, and I'm just gonna. It's particularly apropos of what you just mentioned the move on the part of the West to ban Russian culture. So let's play the JFK clip. Hit it. As America
Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. Mark, do you have any thoughts about that clip in the light of the current period we're in right now? Well, I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, it, it, in compared to now, when we have seen Russia and Russian culture and Russian literature and Russian music and Russian breed cats and Russian trees and everything else being canceled across the West, that 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 time now, uh, you know, the Cold War, at least that part of it seems uh, noble and enlightened even compared to the sentiment now. But it has to be said that uh, there are certainly problems with what he just said, because he certainly lied that uh, that uh, the uh, U.S. and and Russia, the Soviet Union, have never gone to war because the U.S. invaded the Soviet Union, along with several other Western powers in 1919. Uh, what is referred to in historical footnotes when it's remembered at all today as the kind of innocuously named polar bear expedition for those of you you know who who are unfamiliar google it look it up on wikipedia but uh you want to know where the cold war really started it's it's when the u.s uh invaded u.s uk other western countries even japan imperial japan uh invaded uh the nascent soviet union then um uh you know as the civil war there was winding down in an attempt to uh, strangle the Soviet Union, to to strangle communism uh, in its cradle, right? I mean, that that, that was what they said at the time. Uh, Of course, it didn't turn out so well for them, and they eventually retreated, and it was kind of trying to forget that whole episode in history. But um, uh, it's simply untrue that that, that the uh, U.S. and and Russia slash the Soviet Union have never been at war. They they certainly were at that point, and that was a direct U.S. troops invading the Soviet Union. But I think, you know, as you pointed out, even mentioning that Russia beat the Nazis in World War II would be called Putin talking points. A lot of what JFK said there would be called Putin talking points. Agreed? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, all of history has to be rewritten, uh, you know, uh, to present the, you know, the U.S. as the savior of Europe and defeating Nazi Germany and saving Private Ryan and all of this nonsense. Um, and uh, I mean, if it's particularly interesting, they've had polls done um, uh, comparing uh, the people of France, who at the time. Uh, uh, the country they considered most responsible for the defeat of Nazi Germany uh, at the time in World War II, uh, you know, at the end of it, 1945, was the Soviet Union. Uh, and now uh, they've, they've completely forgotten that history and that the French people of today believe that the United States played the greatest role. Uh, it's a, a, a complete reversal of historical facts. But when when you have the immense, you know, soft power of of Hollywood uh, that the U.S. Uh, has, and it is an immense uh, uh, amount of soft power. You you can rewrite history like that. Now let's mention some actual Putin talking points because he made a speech recently. Uh, was it today? Yes, I can't uh, tell the, yeah. the time difference. Yeah, it it was today, uh, Thursday, uh, the twenty seventh. Um, it was at the Valdai Discussion Club, which is um, a kind of a a meeting of intellectuals. Uh, it was originally billed as kind of a dialogue between Russia and the West, although most of the dialogue has gone certainly disappeared in the last couple of years. Um, but um, uh, the the meetings are, are are still taking place on some level, um, and Putin spoke there uh, today, and uh, he gave a rather uh, you know uh, substantial, uh, both in length uh, and uh, in I, I believe the significance of the words that were said, um, even though I mean I guess you could say there is nothing dramatically new, uh, but um, I think simply the, the way he constructs the arguments of, you know, the current state of relations between Russia and NATO, Russia and the West um, is worth reading. Uh, it's worth listening to, worth reading. Um, and uh, in this speech today, he did specifically spend uh, some time talking about this uh uh, you know, uh, cancel culture uh, in the West and how they are specifically and literally trying to cancel Russian culture and and how very, um, um, I, I think evil is a good word uh, when, I mean, it's not a word I like to use myself a lot, being, you know, a realist and a cynic, but when you're trying to, uh, you know, deny your own people uh, to to uh, read and and be taught about uh, you know uh, some of the greatest um, writers and musicians and artists uh, of the last uh, few hundred years because they are are were from you know the area that is today the Russian Federation uh, you know that's it's wrong. It's stupid, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's evil. Well, a culture is not a person, but 
this is a equivalent to me of dehumanizing a culture. Do, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So that was one of the things that struck me from that JFK excerpt. That was a time when he was not afraid to say the truth, which is Russian culture and science, too. And it's significant that Kennedy at that time mentioned Russian science and space exploration as something to be admired. Because Kennedy could have taken a sort of pissy attitude and not mentioned that. At at the time, the Russian space program was ahead of the U.S. space program. And he didn't have to mention that. But it's significant. It is not dehumanizing the the culture. So, Mark, let's hear a little bit. Yeah, like I said, more noble and and enlightened. Yes. So let's hear that clip from Putin's speech, the one that's marked today. Hit it. Attitude of the United States to their satellites is evidence. They have turned Ukrainian territory into a testing grounds for biological experimentation and creating weapons. Now, the Kiev regime wants to obtain nuclear weapons. The Kiev authorities have voiced their intentions publicly, but this has been ignored. And uh, they're also planning to use dirty bombs for provocations. And this poses a threat comparable to that posed by ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and uh, other terrorist groups which are trying to infiltrate these highest countries uh, carrying out uh, covert activities. And uh, such militants pose a threat to the region. And it is evident that neither the CIS and neither our countries um, have ever faced such level of threats. Now, Mark, do you think, uh, I, I don't like to put too much emphasis on the personality of Vladimir Lulinsky, because he's clearly not running things. But I will say that I do think he is somewhat of an obsession himself with nuclear weapons. And yeah, I, I point that out because prior to the invasion, he also, he's been bringing them up forever throughout this military action. Do you agree with me? Yes. And, uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. At the beginning of, of uh, uh, 2022, before Russia's intervention at the Munich Security Conference, uh, Zelensky outright said that uh, he, that Ukraine, and he being the president of, of, well, at least of the Kiev regime in Ukraine, uh, that uh, could uh, seek nuclear weapons. And he has called for a nuclear first strike on Russia. Uh, and uh, he had, had further uh, called for a nuclear strike specifically on the Kremlin. Uh, so uh, uh, certainly he seems uh, to be, you know, um, I, I, I guess that probably comes from desperation. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of question Considering that that would result, you know, invariably in World War Three, uh, nuclear World War Three, and 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 a nuclear apocalypse, we have to really ask: Are we dealing with a rational actor in Zelensky? Has he become completely unhinged? And I I think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, um, maybe it's good that 
that actually that he's being puppeteered to a very large degree by the West, uh, because um, uh, if he was completely uh, on his own, what would he do? What wouldn't he do? Um, I I don't know at this point. Uh, But uh, back uh, to the cults, the cancel culture thing. Um, I've got a, uh, another uh, quote from that speech today, specifically on that. uh, If you want to hear that Lee. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big, it's a very important topic. And let me say this too, before you say that, I think it is something that reasonable people and we don't have any in the United States, <laughs> politicians, no, but I mean this, political leaders, we don't have anyone who can say, look, at least don't ban Tchaikovsky. At least don't cancel this culture. And that that should be non-controversial with sane people. So go ahead, Mark. Yeah, it should be. I mean, I, Tulsi Gabbard jumps to mind. Rand Paul jumps to mind. But, um, you know. They're 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 hardly at the the height of uh, political power in D.C. Uh, at the moment. Yeah. So this was from Putin's speech today, and he uh, in the cancel culture that you particularly uh, alluded to, and he said, "And what is happening now? At one time, the Nazis reached the point of burning books, and now the Western guardians of liberalism and progress." quote unquote, have reached the point of banning Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky, the so-called cancel culture. And in reality, as we said many times, the real cancellation of culture is eradicating everything that is alive and creative and stifles free thought in all areas, be it economics, politics or culture. Today, liberal ideology itself has changed beyond recognition. If initially classic liberalism was understood to mean the freedom of every person to do and say as they pleased, in the 20th century, the liberals started saying the so-called open society had enemies and that the freedom of these enemies could and should be restricted, if not canceled. It has reached the absurd point where any alternative opinion is declared subversive propaganda and a threat to democracy. And that specifically relates, I think, to what Amazon's doing. And by the way, you know, of course, that Amazon said that they banned Dugan under pressure from the government. And we know that Amazon has banned a book about Bill Browder, critical of him, due to pressure from a State Department official, Jonathan Weiner. So this has been going on for a while. But people are noticing okay, but, it now. But, but yeah, I, I think Amazon is trying to – I mean there's a revolving door between Amazon and the White House. Let's, let's, let's be clear. I mean Jeff Bezos owns Amazon and he owns the Washington Post, the paper of record in Washington, D.C. So uh, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't accept Jeff Bezos attempting to pass the buck to that to the U.S. No, and I agree. I don't think they were dragged – kicking and screaming into it. But even the fact yeah. that the U.S. government asked, the U.S. government should never, according to our First Amendment and our Constitution, according to everything, and I'll tell you what, I would have been absolutely horrified by that. Clearly, JFK, a Democrat, JFK, it shows how far the party, 
the Democratic Party has shifted. They've become the opposite. They become, by the way, the champions of the CIA, who I would argue killed JFK four months after that speech. What say you, Mark? Yeah, and I, I really seriously doubt that JFK would be accepted in the Democratic Party of today. I mean, I'm not saying that he would be a Republican either. He, like like many people, he would be, you know, probably lost outside the uh, the the Coke Pepsi uh, uh, duopoly of of power in D.C. Uh, uh, unable to identify with either one of them, but uh, he certainly wouldn't fit in the the Democratic Party of today, that has somehow become the party of the national security state. Uh, and I, I say that as someone who once upon a time, you know, you know. Uh, you know, literally was a, a volunteer for the Democratic Party. So uh, I certainly wouldn't have anything to do with them today. And I think that having a weak Democratic Party th- that has no principles at all, it defeats the purpose of having, you know, the two-party system. We have warmongery and mo- more warmongery. And you rarely point out people like Tulsi Gabbard can't be in the Democratic Party anymore because she's attacked. And it's a shame. I think it's very dangerous, very, very dangerous for this country and subsequently the world. So let's we have one more clip from that Putin speech today. Let's play that clip. Hit it. Integration, on the contrary, is tapping into potential of each civilization in the interests of the whole for common good. If globalism means dictate, dictate, that what it boils down to, then integration is defining common strategies beneficial to everyone. In this regard, Russia believes necessary to more actively launch mechanisms of creating larger spaces built on cooperation between neighboring countries whose economy, social system, resources, and infrastructure complement each other. Such large spaces, in essence, are the foundation for the multipolar world order, the economic foundation. The dialogue of such spaces gives birth to true unity of humankind, much more complex, unique, and multidimensional than in simplified versions of Western ideologists, well, some of them at least. The unity of humanity cannot be built according to the order, be like us, do like us. It is it's taken shape with consideration to the opinion of everyone, with careful treatment of identity of each community and nation. Only this principle can be the foundation for long-term cooperation in multipolar world. In this regard, maybe we should think about the structure of the United Nations, including its Security Council, how it should better reflect the multitude of global regions, because... It is Asia of Africa, Latin America of tomorrow will be uh, defining much more than it is common, commonly thought today. And that is a positive thing. I'd like to remind you that the Western civilization is not the only one in our common Eurasian space. Moreover, the majority of the, of the population is situated in the east of Eurasia, which was the cradle of the ancient civilization of humanity. The value and significance of Eurasia is that this continent is a self-reliant, tr- self-reliant 
complex which has tremendous resources of all kinds and wonderful opportunities. The harder we work on greater interconnectedness in Eurasia, on creating new paths and forms of cooperation, the more tangible result we'll achieve. Successful activity of Eurasian economic unity, rapid growth of cloud and influence of Shanghai Cooperation Organization, large-scale initiatives in One Belt, One Road initiative, plans for multilateral cooperation on implementation of the transportation corridor north-south, and many other projects in that part of the world, I'm sure, um, bringing in the dawn of the new era, of the new stage in Eurasian development. Integration projects here do not compete, but rather complement each other. Naturally, if they're implemented by the neighboring countries in their own interests and not introduced by external forces in order to drive a wedge in Eurasian space and to turn into a zone of block standoff. Now, you know, we've talked before many times about how Putin's view of the multiple world is not a unipolar world that Russia runs things. It's truly a multipolar world. So let me ask you about something I've never talked to you about. Uh, and I, I don't know what your opinion is going to be, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. What do you think about Iran? Because in one sense, Iran is an ally of Russia's. But in another sense, I, that just because of an ally in some areas, does Russia is also maintains a friendly relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is Iran's big enemy in the Middle East. What do you personally think of Iran, and what do you think Russia's attitude towards Iran is, Mark Sabato? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, after uh, Russia and China, I mean, I, I the big country that has been pushed as a leadership position in what is sometimes called the multipolar axis of resistance is Iran. And I mean, there's no question. If you take a look at the three countries, China, Russia, and Iran, um, and there were headlines in the last week, I, I, Bloomsburg and I believe elsewhere, can the U.S. take on Russia, China, and Iran at the same time? Well, no, you can't. I mean, <laughs> let's just leave it right there. And if you do, um, you know, the best that the best result could be the burning of the world, of the entire world in the process. And, and the, I, I guess from the American perspective, the worst result would be, a, you know, a complete either economic uh, uh, or uh, a defeat by military overstretch. Uh, you know, attempting to retain hegemonic power. Uh, but, you know, there's a huge cultural, political, social difference between these three countries, yet they find themselves increasingly pushed together by the one thing that they have in common uh, is, uh, well, maybe two things. One, they are all being pressed, pushed uh, and destabilized by a uh, hegemonic, a, a, a U.S.-led Western uh, hegemony, by a U.S. that is, is seeking to exert control over each one of them uh, or to weaponize uh, its neighbors against them. Um, and, and the other thing they have in common is they've all reached a point 
where their vision of the the multipolar world that they want going forward is they are willing to respect each other's differences politically, culturally, civilizationally, socially, and look past those differences, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, say that it's okay that we don't have the, the same political system, the same culture, the same values. Let's find that what we do have in common and, and trade and share technology and deal with bigger picture world problems like, uh, you know, um, uh, epidemics like uh, climate change, uh, you know, uh, like uh, uh, dealing with, with uh, you know, global poverty and malnutrition. And, and Iran has increasingly become an important uh, military strategic partner of Russia. And it wasn't that way just 10 years ago. Uh, but uh, now uh, Russia, China, and Iran are holding joint naval drills every year, uh, the three of them together. And uh, Iran has provided the designs for uh, uh, a drone system, uh, the Shahed-136, to Russia, uh, which they're producing locally as the Garan with some modifications. Um, and um, uh, it, it fill, it's filling a military capability gap in their own drone, drone and loitering munition uh, uh, toolbox, uh, something that they, they – because of the very low cost of it and, and the high degree of, of accuracy, of efficiency, they've put to very good use in the last month. Um, so um, yeah, Russian and, and um, Iran are being pushed closer together. Um, in the same regard, Russia and Saudi Arabia have not always been friends either. In fact, uh, you know, uh, as a firm ally of the U.S. for decades, Russia and Saudi Arabia were really at odds, uh, and, you know, in Syria and elsewhere. And there was this oil price war. Uh, in 2014-2016. Uh, um, but they've discovered that they can respect each other's many differences and and uh, find things that they have in common, which is, huh, we're both the two biggest oil exporting countries in the world, um, you know, uh, and uh, let's let's uh, sit down and, and uh, that is OPEC+. Plus. Right. Uh, OPEC plus is Russia and Saudi Arabia determining the global oil market together because it's a lot easier for Saudi Arabia to deal with Russia rather than dealing with the rest of the fractious members of OPEC. And if the two biggest players on the market come to a decision, everyone else in OPEC has to come into line. Uh, so um, and it has to be said that actually in the last year, there have been feelers put out between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and they've actually started to talk to each other, uh, something that I, I think the U.S. probably finds very uncomfortable. Right. And was you, Russia does not find uncomfortable at all. So, no. Mark, great answer. As, great conversation as usual. Thanks for staying up with us on The Backstory. Mark Sloboda, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about what's going on domestically on The Backstory.
And we're back on the backstory in the Empire of Lies, bringing you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. So, as usual, great conversation with Mark Slobota. What do you think, Rod? No, definitely, Mark, you know, he lays it out pretty well. And then, uh, you know, also he was able to talk about, uh, you know, I wasn't able to grab that clip, but it was important what he was talking about uh, when he quoted Putin from today's speech. Well, that that's why the clip, the, and we'll play it later, the thing that jumped out at me from that JFK clip was him simply praising Russian culture and, as I mentioned, science as well. But that is unheard of today. And I want a politician to propose a bill to fight against that, to fight against banning Tchaikovsky. And someone needs to step up and sue Amazon and the government for banning books. I feel very strongly about that. What do you think, Rod? Yeah, no, I agree. That, that, I mean, that's so crazy, Lee, and that the, the Biden administration is involved with this. You know, they have no shame. So, you know, they're, they're all in. They're all in for being a fascist administration. Absolutely. So Daniel Zar is our guest this hour, and we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. Rod, take us out with a boom. You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Well done. So 202-521-1320. So uh, let me see. I've got a clip about the NFL owners, and I don't know much about football. I'll leave that to Rod and my girlfriend. But I do know something about stadiums because this is something I've always hated about George W. Bush. Do you remember how George W. Bush first got involved in politics, Rod? Uh, well, I do remember him through sports when he was the owner of the Rangers, and then that's then he right. Started, and then I think he became the governor after that, right? Well, what happened was he was part of a consortium of people who bought the Texas Rangers baseball club, okay? And the first thing that they did was they had to build a new. They wanted to build. They didn't have to. No one has to in sports. It's not a have to thing. You have to eat and breathe. You do not have to throw a ball. So, but they decided to buy a new stadium, but they didn't want to pay their own money to do that. So the way George W. Bush became involved in politics is he urged the people of Dallas County and Tarrant County to increase their taxes and the increased taxes would go to buy a stadium. Then a few years later, and this is the part that I hate, when Bush's group sold the Rangers, they also stole the stadium that they'd force other people to pay taxes higher, pay higher taxes. I don't want to pull a Fetterman there. Uh, pay higher taxes. He sold the stadium and kept the profits. Does that make sense? That's how George W. Bush first got involved in politics, is he asked people to pay more in taxes for a stadium that he later sold and kept the profit from the stadium. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, I remember that, um, you know, just just briefly uh, when I was younger, league because, you know, there was actually somewhat uh, journalism out there in the sports media. So, yeah, I do remember that. And there was there's some controversy behind that. 
And it's really gross. If you want to buy a stadium, fine. Buy a stadium. Spend your own money. Then when you sell it, you keep the profit. That's fine. That makes sense. But don't force someone, don't force your neighbors to pay more in taxes and then sell the stadium at a profit to yourself. That's scuzzy. And it's how Bush got involved. And there's nothing about that that's capitalism. Do you agree? My, the way I view capitalism, that's not it. Rod, what yeah, do you no, think? Yeah, no, 100%. Lee, you know, I remember when the Eagles got their latest stadium, which was the uh, Lincoln Financial. Before that, it was the Vet, which was shared by the Phillies and the Eagles. Um, so, and I remember how that went down and how they was proposed to the city. And I remember a lot of people, you know, again, I was younger. So, you know, I was in high school and I didn't have a full grasp. But I remember a lot of people were uh, upset that there was so much tax payer money involved and you know these, these nfl owners they're 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 the oligarchs they're the billionaires um you know woody johnson for the new york jets he's the johnson and johnson uh he comes from that family he's the guy who's writing in, in the op-eds in the new york post that uh it's morally we're morally obligated to uh support ukraine and send our soldiers over there so you know this is this is the dark side of the of the nfl and this is how they get over on the taxpayers um, and it's a Game of Thrones situation. It, it's happening in real time. It's not. It's, it's bubbling at the surface, but uh, it's 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 going to rise. And I, I think um, honestly, Congress is going to have to get involved once uh, things like this uh, come to be known to to the public. You know, a lot of businessmen, once they reach a certain level of success, realize how much money there is in the government, so they give up capitalism. Bezos did that. He built Amazon. A revolutionary company, the world's largest bookstore. But when he realized where the big money was, was when he started getting contracts for the CIA and started buying the Washington Post, which I would argue, do you think Bezos bought the Washington Post or my cynical as a way of sucking up to the government? Rod, what do you think? Oh, Oh yeah, of course, Lee. I mean, <laughs> I remember. I remember when it was happening in real time, or it was it was being speculated, or allegations of it that it was going to happen, and it's just like you know, uh, okay. And then at the same time, it's when he's getting this CIA, this big CIA contract, right? So it's just like to me, it's kind of like at a dinner. It's like, hey, maybe you should uh, buy the Washington Post. You know what I mean? And because because at the time, uh, uh, buying a newspaper while the internet was busy killing newspapers all over the country was a bad investment. It makes no sense from a business standpoint. What are you gonna buy? You know, Newsweek sold for like a dollar recently. And so while the newspaper business was dying due to advertising revenue being killed by the internet, Bezos did not buy the Washington Post as a savvy business move. He bought it as a way of buying essentially the deep states newsletter right rod yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and they bought that uh that big house in uh dc not too far from uh the capital i believe so you know it's you know what what else can you say this this is it this is uh this is what we did you know this is the oligarch that's uh that was pushed on us by the cia uh jeff bezos and apparently that's also when he shaved his head to look like Lex Luthor and start taking steroids or something because he got oddly muscular for an old man and bald. 
and he does look like yeah yeah no it doesn't it doesn't work that way lee you know i've seen him uh, pictures from before he was just like uh you know i guess some people would call him he'd be the typical nerd but now he's he's, he's jacked <laughs> and i don't i've never really seen you know i mean he probably has his own gym or whatnot but he's on the uh if you look at the uh, uh dana white one of the founders of the ufc he's also on that uh on that juice you know what i mean yeah so let's we have a clip about the the NFL owners saying, "Set this up, Rod." Uh, this was from the here? this was this was from the debate uh, from Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin two days ago. Um, this really didn't make too big of headlines, but uh, Kathy Hochul had passed a couple months ago uh, that the that the Buffalo Bills are going to get a new stadium because they were threatening to move. That's that's the new thing the NFL does to get these stadiums, and uh, she proposed six hundred million to help these billionaires, uh, $600 million of taxpayer money to, uh, to, to get the stadium built. And by the way, that won't do anything to change the Bills' fundamental problem there, which is they're in Buffalo, which is not that big a city, right? So th this new stadium will not make people flock to Buffalo because they've heard of the winters there. So uh, Buffalo still has the same problem. They're not going to get huge crowds because of the size of the city. Do I understand that geography and math right, you think? Yeah, 100 percent, Lee. You know, these are just uh, empty threats. Even at the Buffalo Bills, where to move, uh, you know, where are you going to go? You know, uh, there's already so many teams in L.A. Um, you know, what other metropolitan city are you going to move to? It doesn't even. So it's, these are empty threats just to, and then, you know, this is just to, honestly, to me, there were, these are threats to political seats. If you don't get us to the stadium, we're going to get you out. Yeah. And, and there's only so many teams you can have in Florida or California. So let's play this clip. Hit it. The state, uh, Mrs. Hochul, will pay $600 million toward the construction of a new $1.4 billion stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Most studies show that stadium subsidies don't provide economic benefits to justify their costs. What evidence is there that this $600 million will deliver public benefits exceeding the state's investment? I'm happy to answer this question. You, know, you think about the identity of a community. Like Broadway is to New York City, the Buffalo Bills are to Western New York. And our legislators, this is one of their top priorities in Albany. Every region has its own priorities. They have their own regional projects. This was important to make sure that the Buffalo Bills stayed in New York State, and they were looking elsewhere. So we structured a plan. And if you look at just the salaries of the players, they, they do very well. The tax proceeds that we'll receive from just the players alone after 20 years will more than pay for that investment. But I found an offset to that investment in making sure sure that the Senecas who owed money to the state of New York that was never collected and was generated from three casinos in West York, that that was actually used as an offset. So that helped us with over $450 million of that total cost. When you put the whole picture together, that's a deal to keep the Buffalo Bills in this state for 30 more years. So a couple of follow-ups. Um, wasn't there a way to keep the bills in New York State without having to spend more public money than almost any other state on this project and 
As far as I know, the bills never said that they were going to move anywhere. I think if you checked Buffalo News reports, you'd find a different accounting of that. Uh, those are from their own representatives. They said they were looking elsewhere. I actually heard from people in other states who said they've been contacted. So this was real. It's easy to say now, an armchair quarterback uh, afterward, but it, it was real. And I was not going to be the governor. In fact, Governor Pataki said to me, I just saw him at an event, he says, you are smart. You could not be the governor that lost the Buffalo Bills, the team that plays in New York. But we love the Giants and Jets as well. So, so let me just answer this. Yeah. You have to understand the Buffalo Bills market. It's small. It's not Las Vegas. It's not Miami. You can't have the same price of tickets. So you need more assistance. So you can't really compare. And this is what the analysts have said. For a small market team to still be in Buffalo in the first place is quite extraordinary. We're proud to have them. It's part of who we are. Thank you. But you have to give incentives to make it worthwhile. Thank you, Mrs. Hochul. Now, Mr. Zeldin, if you become governor, will you renegotiate the Bills' deal? Oh, we can absolutely have a better deal. The Forbes list just came out. The owner of the Buffalo Bills. The Even if it means the Bills might leave. They're not leaving. Huh. And listen, Bills Stadium, they, they need, I was just at a, a Bills game recently. It's a great place to watch a, a game. But uh, giving a multi-billion dollar owner of a football team all of the this tax dollars, which isn't yours as the governor. You're actually supposed to be a steward of the, of the money. See, the governor has referred to New Yorkers as her apostles. She's referred to herself as the mother of New York's 62 counties. I believe that public service is about serving the public. She thinks it's about the public serving her. Seneca Nation is made up of people who are Bills fans too, and you put the squeeze on them, hundreds of millions of dollars, and it was wrong the way that that happened. And as far as the way this process went, it wasn't that the governor was sitting down with legislative leaders. Thank you, Mr. Zeldin. Oh, it's not yet read. It's not like she sat down with the legislative leaders and was saying, hey, this is coming. We're finalizing a deal right now. No, at the 11th hour of a budget deal, she slams it in. She screws over Seneca Nation, and she puts the, the squeeze on legislators. No vetting, no debate. And there you have it. And that's why on the show yesterday, Ted Rall said to his horror that he thinks Lee Zeldin will be the next governor of New York. Lee Zeldin, who Ted Rall, you heard the horror in Ted Rall's voice as he admitted that. But he thinks Lee Zeldin, who he considers a radical right-wing Republican. But that performance in the debate shows why he thinks New York will have its first Republican governor in a long time. Do you agree, Rod? Yeah, for sure, Lee. Uh, I heard I heard Ted, you know, <laughs> loud and clear. He said he hates Lee Zeldin. Uh, you know, I guess politically, not like, you know, hates his guts like he wants, <laughs> you know, like he's done something personally to him. Um, but, you know, uh, even though he hates Lee Zeldin, that tells you how bad uh, Kathy Hoke and the Democrats are. And let's not forget the lieutenant governor who got arrested, uh, who was her personal pick. You know, I know that went out the news cycle real fast. Um, but uh, so, yeah. So so as we're facing, you know, we're we're about 10 days or so from the election. And you know what they say every election? This is the most important election of our lifetime. Every every election is that. But this one, I think in a lot of ways, is the most important election. I can remember in a long time. Because I think the Republicans have a chance to shut down the Democratic Party as a going concern in a lot of ways. I think people are leaving the Democrat Party and they're not going to come back as long as they 
have the same policies that are, are so antithetical to working people. The Democrats, how do you think a working class person in Buffalo, I, I don't think they actually care. They do not want the bulls saved at any cost. And that's what the, Lee Zeldin was saying. He said, we'll negotiate a better deal. And Kathy Hochul was saying, we, we won't even try. And I think, do you agree with my point, Rod, that this is a huge election historically? Actually, I think one of the most important ever. Yeah, for sure, Lee. I mean, look, look at, look at with the Fetterman thing. I know we've been covering it a lot, but it's just to show you the depths that they've, they're how low they've gone, Lou. You to put a guy who just isn't mentally, not mentally because he's, you know, crazy or anything. I mean, he is crazy, but, but just because he's had a stroke, he's not capable of holding office. But they still want to push him along. Kathy Hochul, the governorship, and you know, just giving away stuff to billionaires. I mean, again, why are we building homes for billionaires? You know what I mean? I don't think that makes any sense. Um, in the show before us, you know, they always talk about class. This shows that that class of people, they're always trying to screw us over the, uh, these billionaires. Uh, you know, you know, I've been seeing it for the last 10 years and it's come to a, a, a boiling point now, especially the NFL, NBA. They're not going to play any games on election day. They've never done that before. Then the NFL, you know, I think the, I noticed when Obama was running, they were, had some ads for voting, but now they're uh, pushing it really hard. But they're not. But you know who they're implying to vote for, because if you say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pushed to vote, but I'm pushed to vote 100% up and down the ballot Republican. You know, I mean, you might get a spit in the face, you might get, uh, you might get shot, you might get attacked, you know, or whatever. And I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. Marco Rubio's uh, canvasser got attacked. Uh, Alex Stein was at Penn State University. Uh, you know, a liberal, a liberal haven got spit, you know, got spit at and attacked. And so, all, you know, it's just crazy the environment we have now. So, uh, 202-521-1320, if you want to call in, we still got a few minutes. Do you think this is the most important election of your lifetime? And I'm going to say, given what the Democratic Party now represents, because when I was growing up, they represented anti-censorship and peace. That party's gone. And I don't see anyone, you see anyone now Tulsi's gone. I don't see anyone fighting to bring that back on the Democrat side. Am I missing someone, Rod? No, Lee, uh, you know, I'll take it to the uh, to the micro level, you know, in, in Philadelphia. Um, you know, all the people that are running for mayor, it's a couple of women, a couple other Democratic men. Uh, what's the most important thing they talk about? Uh, abortion. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I don't think that's the most important thing to the common person, uh, even though some people might have it on their top five or top ten. But, you know, it's it's not. It's not uh, what people are worried about. They're worried about, like you said, you know, just what's going to bring us uh, our economy, uh, crime and things like that. And, you know, a lot of those things lead back to us supporting this war and leading us to nuclear war um, and things like that. I will say in in the Democrats defense, they're running better party than the conservatives in England, because, you know, Richie Suyak, have you seen he is falling exactly into line with what the great Ian Schilling has said. He is globalist central. And England is really, you know, I, would, would you say the Tories in England 
are in the same position, in a sense, as the Democrats here? Um, from the little I understand of the British politics, because it is, you know, I agree with Carmine. It's, it's just, it's just really confusing and hard to, to follow. But the, from what I've got the grasp of, yeah, hundred uh, percent. And I, I think Rishi Sunak, to me, he's like a, an Obama. Uh, but you know, two thousand eight already passed, but they're trying to do it to their uh, constituents over in the UK. You know, I saw uh, in the media here. You know, how many Indian politicians are there here in America? Or how many Amer- Indian politicians are there in the world? So now, you know, it's, it's just he's like another Obama to cut out. I'll tell you who I think he is. And I'm not disagreeing too much, but Justin Trudeau, he seems like a Justin Trudeau kind of guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're all so similarly like they're just, you know, just a little different flavor, you know, uh, so, yeah, but they're all so similar. Uh, Trudeau, Obama, Sunak. I mean, what, what's what? The only difference is a little bit of how they talk and uh, hairstyles. Let's go to calls two hundred two five two one thirteen twenty, and a caller who I want to talk to about the idea I had for the art for Assange event. Brave from Atlanta. Brave, what's on your mind? Hey, what's going on, man? How you guys doing today? I um I'm tuning in kind of late, so forgive me. I wasn't I didn't hear the first hour, but I did just hear um, your point about being the most important election. And I, I wanted to ask, yeah. like... Uh, Go ahead. Well, so, uh, I mean, they say that every year, right? They say that every year. They say that every election term, right? But I, I um, in, in this case, uh, I have, I guess, selfish reasons. The Democrats have just really gotten on my nerves, really, and just proven themselves to be like uh, horrible fascists, right? And I am terrified of... Not terrified. I am just, uh, just irritated and, and uh, pissed off at a lot of things they're doing, right? But as far as um, where the country is going, and I'm not talking about all the woke stuff. That stuff is, is irritating in itself. Um, but as far as where the country is going, I, I don't know that I have any more faith in the uh, Republicans. I, I mean, I am hoping that the Republicans sweep the Democrats, not because I'm a Republican or Republican supporter, but more just because of the, the things the Democrats have been doing and just how nauseating and how unbearable they they become. Um, probably have always been, but um, I wanted to ask you: What do you, what do you think um, the Republicans intend on doing outside of all the woke stuff? Right? Um, what do they intend on doing? Because what we're doing as far as um, Ukraine, I mean, yeah, Republicans are, are saying some things now, and some Republicans came out and and, and uh, against this, but for the most part, they're all lockstep, right? And then, and, and even if even if the Republicans pull back from Ukraine. Are they then going to shift towards aggressions towards China, which is still just a, 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 a war and suffering by a whole di- uh, by a different name? You know what I mean? What, what do you think about that? Well, I would look to the people. It's a good question. And I would look to Thomas Massey and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rand Paul and people like that. And potentially Tulsi Gabbard. I would look to the act. You know, who are the most activist wing? And who are the most attacked people in the Republican Party? That's where you're seeing a, a hint of sanity. Does that make sense, Brave? No, that that makes perfect sense. I just don't know. Like then, when you say Tulsi, obviously you're pulling at my heartstrings. <laughs> I would agree, right? I don't know if you're implying that Tulsi will be going um, to the right or Republican. I would I would assume that she will be going Libertarian or third party. But obviously she's not in politics right now. It would be good if she ran uh, for president. Would be even better. Um, 
those those uh, Republicans that you mentioned, um, I, some of the things they've done, I've I've, um, I've been cool with, and I like. I don't I don't uh, judge issues whether on whether it's red or, or blue, right? I'm not with the Crips and the Bloods, but I just I just ha- I can't help but wonder. Um, like for instance, I, we go we, the Republicans. I said the Republicans get into office, right? Are they going to seriously look into? Are they going to seriously look into the whole Russiagate and all the things that are hiding behind that? Are they going to seriously look into why we are so dedicated to supporting um, Ukraine? Because I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of money laundering going on right now with with, um, with Ukraine. Are they going to seriously look at those things, or are they going to just hold like hearings to bang on the desk and you know get back at the at the at the uh, liberals and stuff? And then in the end, it's still you know the corporate trying to win the corporate money back into their coffers and away from the Democratic office. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm not Republican or Democrat, so I have no problem um, feeling horrible about either side. I just know that right now the Republicans um, are my best bet to getting the Democrats out of here, not that I plan on voting for those guys. So the first conversation I had with Andrew Breitbart, when I first talked to him, we talked about some of the stuff, and he said, as a Republican, there's more room to move. In other words... As a Democrat, picture someone tied up and bound with their hands handcuffed behind their back, and then a sack gets put on them, and they're thrown in a river. Okay? So the Republicans, if that's a Democrat, the Republicans are just put in a sack and thrown in a river, but their hands aren't tied behind their back. There's more room to move. So who would you give better odds to? Who would you rather be? You see what I'm saying? You say no, I, so. I agree with you. I, I was, I was going to say, yeah. I, I, um, again, I'm, I'm independent. Um, I, again, I'm hoping the Republicans sweep, uh, the, sweep the Democrats on all fronts, right? Um, but I just, and, and I do agree with you, there, there does be more room to move um, in the Republican Party. I, I'm not a fan of either party, independent. You know what I'm saying? But, um, yeah, Th- thanks for taking my call, and I appreciate it. A great call, Brave. Call back soon, because I want to talk to you about the Art First Sanjay idea and what ideas you may have on that. Brave from Ananda, great call as usual. Thanks so much. Coming up, the great Daniel Czar on The Backstory. on the backstory and on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Joining us now, great friend of the show, historian and writer, Daniel Zar. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm great. So I want to play a little bit of, we played yesterday because of all the tension about nuclear war. John F. Kennedy's June 1963 peace speech in its entirety because I want people to hear it if they never heard it but also because I think it is especially apropos right now do you have any comments on that in general before I have a short clip to play for you Daniel uh, oh it's it's a great speech and 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 you know and Kennedy I mean this guy is really a performer I mean he he's like one of these performers who are so good that they, it doesn't look like he's performing. He's like he's just speaking naturally, but he has this. His tone is so grave. He's so eloquent. 
it's really an extraordinary speech. And I think that, you know, it's 27 minutes on, on YouTube and I would urge all your listeners to, uh, you know, to, to look it up and listen to it in its entirety because it's really an, an excellent talk. And that's why we played it on the show yesterday. I kind of wanted you to do the equivalent. You know when congressmen read something into the record? I, I want to, yeah. at this point, uh, read something into the record that I think people need to hear. And I wish, you know what I wish? Some congressman would actually play that speech right now on the House or Senate floor. Would you, do you think that would be profound right now? It'd be very interesting, certainly. I mean, you know, I mean, but, but, you know, but the speech is, you know, but, but let's not go overboard because, you know, because Kennedy gave the speech at a u- unique moment in history. And a few months later, everything would fall apart. I'm not, not referring to his assassination. I'm actually referring to the assassination of, of Diem in Vietnam in early November 63. I mean, that's when the whole Kennedy strategy went to seed. Everything fell apart. And Kennedy knew he was in deep trouble. So, you know, so there was this glorious, you know, period in the in the mid 60s when everything was coming together. Uh, and, you know, and, and Kennedy is very eloquent. And when he when he calls, when he urges Americans to search their own soul before criticizing uh, the Soviet Union. I mean, that's very powerful stuff and something you would never hear from, never hear today from people like Joe Biden, for example. Yes, and, and that's what jumped on me, too, as very significant, <coughs> something you would never hear to people. And I, I, I will follow up with an analogy to the situation between de- Democrats and Republicans. He urged people at the height, you know, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis to not just look at criticism of the Soviets, but to also look at things we were doing. And that is so unique. Now, no one on the left or right, everyone, if you're a Democrat, you, you only want to point out the problem with Republicans and vice versa. So do you think that attitude about many things is over right now, Daniel? Oh, oh yeah. We live in a, we live in a time of, of, uh, of moral pseudo-certainty. You know, where, where, where every side is absolutely sure of its own position. And the idea of, like, you know, of, of self-criticism, self-introspection is completely alien to the, to the atmosphere, you know, that we have today. Uh, you know, I mean, um, you know, I'm, when my, you know, I mean, Jesus said, you know, physician, heal thyself. And, and why do you go on about the, uh, the speck in your neighbor's eye without, you know, while ignoring the plank in your own? But you know these are these are very important teachings, and they are completely absent in today's discourse, and on both sides. I mean, Republicans, Democrats. I mean, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. They are you know each side is more self righteous than the other, and that's what we try to fight here in the backstory, and that's why we present opinions from people from a variety of ideologies and try to do it respectfully, and that's why Daniel. I say it all the time when we introduce you, but I'll say it again. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and wisdom about stuff with us. Well, and thank you very much. Although we, <laughs> and you know, I mean it. And 
and we may not agree on some points ideologically, but I think you're a profound scholar and thinker, and people should listen to you. And uh, so let's play a short clip from the speech and see what listening to it, what jumps out at you. Hit the JFK clip again. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. So hearing that in a period when we've heard a lot about nuclear war in the news and from both sides in this conflict, we've heard a lot about nuclear war, more than I can remember any time in certainly my lifetime. what stands out to you from hearing that speech from JFK, Daniel Zar? Uh, um, well, I think that the, uh, the, the, the tribute to the Soviet war uh, sacrifices is very powerful, very powerful. Uh, and the fact that the U.S. is now allied with, uh, with uh, neo-Nazis in the Ukraine, people who, who, uh, who, who, who adore, idolize, uh, a, a Nazi collaborator named uh, Stepan Bandera is like profoundly shocking. It shows how far we've traveled in the last 60 years from those kinds of noble sentiments that JFK uh, expresses to today's really debased politics. And the fact that, you know, that, that he calls for diplomacy and when 30 Democrats very timidly, timidly suggest maybe sort of Kind of, we could sort of like you know you know try to use diplomacy to to solve the situation in the Ukraine. They are swatted down immediately, and then flee in terror. So it just goes to show you know Kennedy was 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 willing to 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 take the diplomatic route. He recognized that war was a dead end. He paid tribute to the Soviet Union's heroic sacrifices in World War II. It's the exact opposite of what we see today. And Daniel, I was born two years after that speech, approximately. So I am of a generation, you know, I'm 57 now. I don't remember learning in history class the importance of Russia in World War II. And, and so two years after Kennedy was killed, it was, I would say, 
wiped from our history books. Was I not just paying attention in history class? Was I asleep or something? Or did that get down the memory hole? Daniel's Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, Hollywood. I mean, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, if you, um, if you followed Hollywood, you know, it was, it was John Wayne who won the award uh, at Omaha Beach. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, one of my favorite kids uh, movies as a kid growing up was, you know, it was about the Battle of the Bulge. Great film, you know, but there's no mention of what was taking place in the in the Soviet Union at the same time. I mean, the the incredibly powerful advances, the 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 sacrifice, the the, the, the bloodbaths that they were going through. I mean, there's complete ignorance. Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, young people got a profoundly one-sided view of history. And of course, that affects the view of current events too. Because if you don't know the, the heroism and the sacrifice, like Kennedy points on that speech, think about that. Everybody east coast of Chicago if everybody east of Chicago had died, that's a, a huge number. And we don't yeah. know anything about that. Right, Daniel? Yeah, I imagine if like, no, imagine if like, no, if, if instead of Stalingrad, it, it had been Chicago. We know where they, where they where battle was fought to, uh, to stop the invaders. And two million people would have died. And the entire city would have been reduced to rubble. I mean, that's what Stalingrad meant. Stalingrad is the you know is the most amazing battle and it's the great it's the greatest battle in history, and we learn nothing about it at all. And of course, there, and for every Stalingrad, there were countless other battles. The uh, the Rezhev meat chopper uh, took you know, claimed 1.3 million Soviet lives, uh, a battle that no one has ever heard of in the uh, in the uh, the West. The subject of an excellent Russian movie recently, by the way, called Rezhev. But uh, a battle that no, that not one American in ten thousand has ever heard of, and one point three million people died. You mentioned the letter that a number of House Democrats, I think it was three of them, sent, but they immediately retracted and repudiated their own own letter. And so, talk a little bit more about that incident. I think the Democrats made themselves look worse. For repudiating the letter, what do you think, oh, Daniel? Definitely, I totally agree. And not only did they make, they make themselves look worse, you know, any prospect of a diplomatic uh, solution was set back by this letter, or not by the letter, but by the, the the cowardly retreat that occurred 24 hours later. I mean, you know, these are people like you know AOC, who you know who is worshipped by every left leftist in the country. I mean, she was, you know, she just went, you know, scurrying for the hills. Uh, and, and the letter is, of course, correct. You've got to have a diplomatic solution. There's no end game here. The, the war can only get worse and worse. I mean, we're not staring at a 1941. We're staring at a 1914. And, uh, and this, you know, this is where everything is leading. So what do you think did the Democrats were actually afraid of. It seems to me the most dangerous thing that could have happened is they would have been called Putin puppets. AOC would have been called a name. 
It seems to me they're more afraid of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt you. They should pay attention to that. They're more afraid of being called a name than nuclear war. Is my analysis essentially correct? Am I missing something? Well, they're more afraid of, yes, you're right. They're, they're more, yes, you're that's absolutely correct. It's a good way of putting it. They're more afraid of being called, called names than of actually being incinerated in a nuclear war, um, which is crazy. Uh, you know, but but nonetheless, I mean, AOC knows that if she took a, a strong stand on, stance on this question, she would come under withering attack by every major news outlet in the country. They would be, they would they would attack and they would they would speak out in unison. They would describe her as as you know as Putin's puppet. I'm talking about I'm talking about you know, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times. Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. And they would all, and they would all be, and we know how it would begin. They would begin, they would begin like, you know, with the assumption that she is Putin's puppet, and then like, you know, then, you know, then proceed from there. Uh, she would be destroyed, and she knows it. So she took the, the, the cowardly way out. Instead of like, you know, instead of like, you know, standing firm and at least going down fighting, she chose to save her career. Yeah, no. By destroy, you mean, of course, she would have been called names because Trump wasn't Trump was called that repeatedly for four years. But it I, I would argue that Trump getting called a Putin puppet over and over. What impact do you think that had actually politically with Trump's base? Do you think it had any effect? Daniel? Oh, no, I think it had. A, I think it had a, had the had the, had a, a contrary effect. I think it, 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 it infuriated his base, and I think that if I am, if, if my predictions are correct, I think that we'll see the Republican base take its revenge in what about twelve days from now. Um, and uh, so, but nonetheless, you know, people were destroyed. I mean, Trump's, you know, Trump lost, you know, billions in his business. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mike Flynn was thrown in jail, and then on the, on the fear, you know, this on extremely spurious, uh, spurious grounds. He wasn't thrown in jail, actually, but he was driven out. Of, you know, he's driven out of, out of politics. Uh, you know, a lot of people were really roughly handled, uh, and and Trump was nearly driven out of office. Uh, a an attempted coup d'état that 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 foreshadowed the attempted coup d'état of January sixth, twenty twenty one. So you know, so uh, you know, as as ye sow, so so shall ye reap. Uh, you know, so we you know we've seen we've seen politics fall apart in an ever more severe way, and 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 certainly that that whole process was that whole episode was part of the process. And so. I said before we were talking about Fetterman, and I was talking about how the Democrats, in my opinion, have abandoned working people. And I, so, however you take that term, mid, middle class or or less people who do stuff like go to the store and buy food, and they see the price of food going up. And if you're just making ends meet, something like the price of butter being twice what it was a year ago, or the price of gas really affects you. But the Democrats can't even seem to admit that. Joe Biden never has admitted that the U.S. is in a recession. So do you think the Democrats 
have clearly abandoned being the party of the working people. And when do you think that happens specifically? When do they well, give I think that up, really? I don't think the Democrats were ever the party, party of the working people. The Democrats are always the party of the middle class. But due to inflation, essentially the average worker is losing one month's worth of income per year. Okay? That's a hell of a blow. And, and workers are seriously upset. And, and they are seriously lo- losing faith in the Democrats. Now, to be fair, it's not all Joe Biden's fault. I mean, I think that the, that the inflationary wave, the reasons for the inflationary wave go back to, to the 2008 financial crash and the Federal Reserve's Ben Bernanke, his decision, Bernanke just got the Nobel Prize, amazingly enough, his decision to flood the markets with liquidity as a way in order to stabilize them and get capitalism back in its feet. I mean, but we know that what that liquidity did, it drove the, the, the stock market, the stratosphere into the stratosphere. It drove real estate into the stratosphere, which meant that people could not afford homes anymore and there were growing numbers of homeless. And eventually it filtered down to, uh, to commodities and it's now dri- driving them up as well. And the Fed, you know, I mean, if the Fed tries to roll this process back, the financial consequences will be devastating. I mean, it's it's starting to do that, but the process is just getting underway. And inflation seems to be accelerating, by the way. Yeah, good point. Now, Daniel, I occasionally throw a topic at you out of the blue, and you always rhapsodize on it and are brilliant. So I'm going to throw a topic at you that I know a little about, but I'll bet you have something to say. Tell us about President Woodrow Wilson. What is his significance in U.S. history? Woodrow Wilson. Uh, well, Wilson was a very important guy. I mean, uh, he, uh, he was a, a deep, profound racist. Uh, he, um, he segregated the, uh, uh, the federal government in a way that it had not been before. Uh, he, you know, he, he um, of course, he hosted a private viewing of, um, oh, what is it, that famous movie uh, about the South? Uh, birth that of celebrated a nation. The, the birth of a nation that celebrated, they celebrated the rise of the Klan. Uh, um, he brought the U.S. government into, U.S. into war and, uh, and unleashed the most ferocious domestic repression uh, this country uh, has had probably ever seen since at least the 1860s. Um, uh, he uh, also um, uh, introduced the concept of the administrative state in which Washington, the, the, the Washington bureaucracy was greatly expanded. Uh, and that's about it. You know, he's a, a very important guy. And also, of course, there's the Versailles uh, Conference. You know, where, where, um, where uh, Wilson preached, you know, uh, self-determination and national, and national sovereignty. But by the time the negotiators were finished, you actually saw more countries in the world reduced to colonial status than when they started. And they also, by the way, refused to, uh, to let Japan take part in the, uh, the conference on purely racist grounds. And uh, I, I could be wrong, but because I, I thought of it when you mentioned the Federal Reserve, didn't the Federal Reserve come up in Wilson's time, if not in his administration? Yes, exactly. 
Uh, it did, and okay. that, and then that was a that was a very very important uh, important um, uh, step towards the kind of the, um, the the current. Oh, actually, no, wait, I just checked. I'm I'm wrong. The Federal Reserve was founded in 1912, so uh, it was um, it was actually under Taft. So just before Wilson, yeah, I, that's why I Correct, said yes. I thought I thought it might be. I know it was around that time. So yeah. what do you think is the significance of the Federal Reserve? And how is it evolved? Federal, the Federal was Reserve it a good idea at any point? Well, I mean, the central banks were important, but the, the Federal Reserve essentially ushered in a new age of inflationary economics. I mean, remember, over the course of the 19th century, uh, prices fell. I mean, milk was was you no know, was a quarter of the price at the end of the 19th century than it was in the beginning. Now this was this was a hard currency era. It was very brutal on uh, very brutal for manufacturers. I mean, uh, it led to huge concentrations of economic power. But it was also the time. Of, it was also the glory period of American manufacturing growth. I mean, remember America? America went from a, a backwater, a country that no one paid attention to. Uh, to the, the to what was clearly the world's you know world superpower by the by 1900, a country that was like coming on like gangbusters, and was already out outproducing Britain, France, and Germany combined. And so, uh, you know, today the Fed is. I was at the first uh, Occupy Wall Street march in Dallas, Texas, and the first Occupy Wall Street march there was in front of the Fed. In Dallas, and I think that the Fed is an issue, uh, obviously, that is of concern to a lot of people on the left and the right, libertarians, and as well as a lot of people who are concerned about the growth of corporate power. Daniel, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the, I mean, so, 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 the, so you had the, you had the hard money era of the 19th century, and the, and the Fed. You know, the Fed introduced the soft money. That's the soft money era of the 20th century into the 21st. Now that led to, I mean, led to great waves of prosperity, and the and the and the wave of prosperity that the the world saw from from 1945 to the early 70s was, um, you know, it was unequaled in human history, absolutely without equal. You look at the. At the at the income, you know, the income charts and the line turned steep, steeply upward, um, you know, after after World War II. I mean, you know, steel workers who could barely put food on the table 20 years earlier were now buying cars, buying home and homes in the suburbs, uh, you know, taking vacations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so you know, a whole new level of prosperity was attained. Now, of course, I, I don't want to exaggerate because much of the world was still in desperate shape. But nonetheless, the U.S. economy especially took off. But we know that by the end of this period, as the underlying economy slowed down, all that excess liquidity went to fuel uh, Wall Street and in gen a general financialization of the economy. And that led to, you know, to huge economic polarization where Wall Street, you know, made out better and better. And the average worker, you know, stagnated and eventually his income turned downward. 
So this period from roughly the mid 70s on from the, you know, from the, 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 the rust belt on has led to, you know, to growing bitterness, growing alienation. Um, and I, I, I would add as a as a leftist that the destruction of the left meant that all this anger and bitterness is now being expressed on the right. And I would point out also, regard that letter we were discussing, the now since since they since they absolutely crushed you know uh, uh, the AOC and company, the only outlet for anti-war sentiment is now on the right wing of the Republican Party. So essentially the, the, the Democrats in, in squashing the progressives handed a huge gift to the isolationist wing of the, uh, of the Republicans. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, the Republicans should really send the Democrats a thank you note for essentially you know, you know, paving the way for them. Now, you're talking about AOC's capitulation on this letter and other people. I would say the person who sets the stage for that in a weird way is Bernie Sanders. When Bernie Sanders capitulated to Hillary Clinton taking over the Democratic Party and rigging the election, the primaries against Bernie, and when Bernie said, okay, that's okay by me, I'll support Hillary. I think it sets the stage for a lot of capitulation that follows. Does it make any sense? Feel free to disagree, Daniel. No, I, I would love, I can't disagree because I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, Sanders, um, I mean, Sanders, uh, I would put it a little differently. Sanders uh, uh, concentrated his fire on domestic issues and steered clear of foreign policy, where, by the way, he was really an entirely an entirely conventional Democrat. Um, I mean, Sanders endorsed Russiagate. Uh, he actually, you know, if you remember after after Trump had his meeting with a with um, with a Putin at Helsinki, uh, you know, Sanders uh, issued, you know, uh, introduced a Senate resolution denouncing uh, Trump as a traitor and a, and a Russian pawn. Exactly the same thing that Hillary Clinton was saying at the time. Um, and, 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 and Sanders has not, you know, uttered so much as a peep with regard to the, uh, the, the, uh, the war in the Ukraine. And this is, you know, the war in the Ukraine, this is the big issue. I mean, this is what's gonna, this is what's gonna capsize, uh, Western society. And, and no one is allowed to speak out against it at all. Because if you speak out, you will find yourself being shouted down by the entire, you know, the entire, you know, the mighty Wurlitzer of American mass media. Uh, so that's why and everyone's really afraid think, to go against it. I really it. think a, a Democrat, those pro-peace, pro-working class, was, and had a set of cojones, they, they stuck to it, would succeed wildly today. Final question, Daniel. Yes or no, do you think, think that would happen? They finally lost support? Yeah, I think that if a Democrat really spoke out forthrightly against this policy, uh, he or she would get a lot of support. I think uh, what, you know how long that support would last, whether that 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 Democrat uh, you know wouldn't wind up crushed, you know, like a bug at the end. I can't say, but certainly they would. Again, uh, great discussion as always, Daniel Czar. Thank you so much. Great discussion as always. 
on the backstory. And thanks again to Mark Sobato. We'll be back tomorrow bringing you a wider variety of opinions on the backstory. 